there's nothing greater than than having thoughtful readers take your work seriously and digest it in the ways that you have. And um, so what I'm going to say by way of reply is really uh, a lot of uh, agreement. And, uh, and I want to highlight, I suppose, the things that I, I felt like were um, underlined that maybe require further work from all of us. Uh, so let me go in, in turn. And uh, yeah, I'm covered in, in fountain pen ink here. Uh, so uh, Lauren started by making the distinction or implying the distinction that I didn't make in my open, opening remarks, which is uh, the operative distinction of the book's argument. And that is between what I call neoliberal boredom. I, I, I have a, a fairly detailed typology of different sorts of boredom, but the, the main distinction is between neoliberal boredom, which is the boredom of constant arousal and then false satisfaction of desire to create new deficits. Um, versus what I call philosophical boredom, which is the kind that uh, you know, Heidegger and uh, Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard, not so much Adorno. Adorno's just sort of sour on most of these points, as he often is. Uh, but philosophical boredom, which is the existential boredom that's, uh, that provokes a kind of, of self-questioning. Um, and so trying to, trying to make that conceptual break is part of the, the, the book's work. And uh, so I thank um, Lauren for bringing that up. Um, I noticed today, I don't know if you guys saw this, Elon Musk has decided to end his Twitter feed. Uh, this is now a thing, right? That high profile uh, former technophiles are, are going offline. Um, but I think Lauren nails this point that, I mean, you can't escape the, the entire economy of social media simply by not being on it because um, there, there's no genuine Bartleby option, right? Or, or the Bartleby option is the one that Bartleby faces. Namely, he goes to prison and stands next to the wall. And, you know, um, if you want to do that. Uh, so um, Molly and I talked about this a long time ago, that uh, some people say, oh, you're, you, they dismiss the critiques by saying, oh, you're just a Luddite. And I happily embrace the label. I, I am a Luddite. Um, I'm resistant to the creep of technology and the dominance of neoliberal forms of it and corporations. Uh, but I'm not a technophobe. You know, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of technology. You know? Phobia implies irrational fear. I have no irrational fear of technology. Uh, Luddite is different. Luddite is active resistance. And I think that's what we should all be. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the, 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 the idea of the, uh, and this links both Lauren's comments and, and Molly's, um, the tyranny of choice. You know, what's the condition? Is it a condition of too much choice or too little choice? Too much uh, apparent power, right? When you go to the supermarket or you open the full fridge or too little power when you don't have a driver's license and you can't go anywhere or do anything. Uh, I think those things are closely related actually. Um, but I, I really like that image of the, the teenager lying on the floor <laughs> because I think that resonates with all of us. I mean, uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I got my driver's license, I would just drive anywhere. You know, I would just get in the car and drive because I could. And if somebody needed a, a pint of milk, I'd be like, yeah, I'll do that. Because um, before I had to walk everywhere or, you know, maybe ride my bike. Uh, so there is that feeling of being trapped. Uh, and I want to come back to that. Um, Lauren and I have talked for many years about this notion of uh, who is the I um, and uh, the notion of, of 
the self and the so-called authentic self. And I, I probably should have said, although I think it's, it's implied, wish I were here is in my terms, I don't know if it's true for Aaron, Lauren, um, but it's a, it's a twist on wish you were here, which is the standard postcard greeting, right? Um, and that idea of wanting to be present. And you can find this all the way through. I, I just, um, you know, in, in, you wouldn't think it, maybe it was there, but in Wittgenstein's Tractatus, he mm -hmm. says, eternal life belongs to those who live in the present. And that's one of the so-called mystical remarks, you know, mm -hmm. that a lot of analytic philosophers dismiss. But uh, that just seems right to me. Um, I'm not sure about the mindfulness, though, because especially for the reasons you mentioned, the way it gets kind of uh, reappropriated. Um, but that the randomness thing, I think, is really fascinating. And I need to think more about this, because I didn't know about Noisify until you told me about it. I can't help thinking that with algorithms, there's always going to be an arms race. Right, so if, if you if you uh, take a few randomizing algorithms, uh, I mean, there really is no genuine randomness, right? I mean, you can no, I mean you can you can do what look like random generations, but um, they can just come back. Random with, enough. Yeah, random enough for for a while, and then and then there'll be a countermeasure um, algorithm. So uh, I like that idea, but I, I'm not sure it has legs. I really like Molly's point about uh, physical isolation and, and the corporeality of boredom. Um, Ira mentioned the dyadic thing, which I, I focus um, on a lot of passages in Kingsley Amos, where uh, what, it, what is boredom if it's not a relationship of some kind? But in some cases, I think this, this corporeality is really, really central to the experience. You know? And your, your metaphors and images there were so vivid um, one that, that occurred to me, it's from Barthes uh, in, um, in A Lover's Discourse, which you also mentioned. Uh, he said, boredom is when a train is repeatedly announced and never arrives. And uh, that's a great image, too. You know? I mean, another train station thing. It's like, you know, the 410 from, uh, I don't know, Orly is coming, but it's not here yet. Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, this is worth mentioning. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, that goes into creating the condition of boredom, whether it's experienced physically or mentally, is about uh, psychic conflict. So I talk about this at some length because it, it links boredom to addiction and also to procrastination and other stuff that I've written about in the past. And that is the difference between a first order desire, I want something, and a second order desire, which is a desire in respect of the first order desire. I want to want something, or I don't want to want something. Right? So an addict, for example, might be either an unwilling addict who doesn't want to have, at the second order, the first order desire that he or she has. Right? So I'm sitting there, and there's the cocaine on the table, and I want it. But at another level of my mind, of my psyche, I don't want to want it. I don't like that desire. If I'm a willing addict, um, it's smooth, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm in psychic good health in one sense because my first and second order desires are aligned. What? Frankfurt wholeheartedness. Right, Frankfurt wholeheartedness. That's exactly what he calls it. Right. So uh, boredom and procrastination and addiction all have this kind of structural similarity about conflict between first and second order desires. Uh, the weird thing about boredom and procrastination is unlike addiction, 
there's not a first order desire that you don't want, or perhaps might want if you're willing. There's an absence of a first order desire. Right? So this is what Adam Phillips, a psychoanalyst, calls, I quote this in the book, um, the paradoxical wish for a desire. Right? And, and that's very Frankfurtian language right there. He doesn't quote Frankfurt. That's exactly what Frankfurt means. I wish I had a desire so that I could specifically focus on something, but I don't. And that's the, the, that conflict creates the restlessness, the feeling. And then I think um, when, when you put it in bodily terms, that's when you start feeling, you know, your physical flat and all those, I mean, those are such great things. Um, it's quite true that uh, I do focus on what you, what you call sort of the middle class version of this. And I guess that's part of just, um, where I come from and, and you know the culture at large. Uh, Molly mentioned Revolutionary Road, and if, if, that's, uh, if you haven't read it, Richard Yates's great novel made into a film with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Kate, Kate Winslet. Yeah, um, very good movie, very good book. Uh, and that really is about too much and too little. Right? And this, this idea that the only way to break up the cycle of having all the stuff that you thought you were supposed to have is to become destructive. Have an affair, crash your car, uh, you know, be drunk all the time, um, commit suicide. You know, uh, those will solve your problem in one sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I, the other thing I wanted to say is, um, I think uh, this is also maybe part of something that that's worth updating. Uh, I didn't know about things like death memes, for example, which are are ubiquitous. And that, that is, I'm not sure it's Kafkaesque exactly, but it is, it is deeply ironic in the sense that you meme. And um, so I, I, that's just kind of, that was missing from my background at the time. Uh, I should say, in David Foster Wallace's article about Kafka and young people, this is from some time ago, he says that they don't understand the blackness of Kafka's humor because they don't get absurdity. And and that, that might still be true, because I have to say, teaching Kafka to first years, um, even now, even though they know death memes and they, they're ironic in lots of ways, there's something about Kafka's humor that is, uh, is pretty special. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a small thing. Uh, and finally, Ira, um, Kingsley Amos, uh, as, as you know, is one of my favorite authors. Uh, and Hitchens, uh, who you mentioned, described Amos's work as the profound fiction of a, of a man who hated boredom. And, uh, and this is true right from his first book, um, Lucky Jim, uh, all the way through uh, um, uncertain, you know, uncertain feeling. Uh, and you can find it everywhere in Amos's fiction. And, uh, and it's really very much from that post-war English period where there, there is um, not too much, there's too little. Right? There's not enough to drink, there's not enough to eat, there's not enough stimulation. And so seeking these, what turn out to be destructive things like affairs and uh, you know, power struggles, um, pointless power struggles, uh, becomes uh, itself almost an addiction. Um, last couple of points from uh, Ira's remarks. Um, I was thinking about your, your, the quotation from Barthes, which I, I think is from A Lover's Discourse, right? Yeah. Uh, where you're waiting, and um, if you guys know that book, it's, a, it's an amazing passage, if I'm thinking of the same one, where he's waiting for his you know, date, 
and uh, the date never it doesn't show up and doesn't show up and doesn't show up. And there's this extended period. And, I, and Amos has written about this too. When you're waiting for somebody to meet you, there's nothing else you can do. I mean, you can leave, but you're waiting because you want to see them. And so you are trapped. I mean, you're physically trapped at the bar or the restaurant or wherever it is. And uh, Barthes has this great line in that passage where he says, I decide to take it badly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so great because it, it captures to me exactly that feeling. It's like, well, you know, it's five minutes, it's 10 minutes, it's 15 minutes. Maybe the trains aren't running on time, but then it's like half an hour, it's 45 minutes, and then it's like, like that, just tip over. Um, and it, it always makes me think of, there, there's a wonderful passage at the end of Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord where he says the, the genius of the situation is uh, what he calls savoir attendre, um, learning how to wait or knowing how to wait. And, uh, and he thinks that's revolutionary. So I, I, you know, the political stream runs through this book. Um, I didn't try to mine it out totally explicitly because I think it, it's better being implicit. But um, maybe that is the answer, is, is a certain kind of learning how to wait. Um, yeah, I think we'll stop there. Oh, one last thing is uh, I do talk about user agreements in the book. Um, studies have shown that nobody reads user agreements. Everybody scrolls down to the bottom and clicks on the box. and. Um, because as you say, what choice do you have? It's like, like that old joke that they, there used to be an ad where it was you know, the, the bomb, the cherry bomb that indicated a system crash. And it, <laughs> the, only, the only box you could check was okay. <laughs> like, yeah, all right. Right, yeah. Anyway, thank you all very, very much. And I thank you all for attention.